0: Uh, have you ever watched a movie with someone who makes it their job to explain everything that happens? Uh, as if their satisfaction in life depends on you catching every last detail. Uh, well, I, uh, I nearly found myself being just that person last weekend with my wife. We had finally gotten around to watching uh, the first episode of one of those popular shows, The Book of Boba Fett, um, for those who know. And uh, within the first three minutes it's Star Wars, and I'm not a huge Star Wars buff, but now with two little boys, I've grown to learn a lot about Star Wars. Uh, within the first three minutes of this episode, I found myself trying to give context to Hannah over and over and over and over and over again. Right? To the point where I even paused it. Within like the first three minutes, I paused the show and was like, Hannah. And started telling her what, she, what I thought she needed to know. And, uh, you know, Hannah graciously smiles and nods. And um, fortunately for both of us, I quickly came to my senses, shut my mouth, and just let us both enjoy the, the, sh- the story as it unfolded in front of us. And wouldn't you know... By the end of that first episode, viewers without any previous exposure would have been able to understand what was happening. The story, captured as it was in those 40-ish minutes, was able to stand on its own two feet. It's good storytelling. The Bible often tells us stories just like this. They are perfectly capable of standing on their own two feet, but pausing to appreciate some of the subtle and maybe not so subtle details can bring an awareness of the depth and the, the genius of the story, what's going on, what's at play. And it's not the genius of excess or, or decadence. It's not scripture showing off and saying, look how clever I am. It, it's a depth, it's a genius, it, it's detail that's practical. It's highly practical informing us into the kinds of people that God intends us to be. So this morning, we are going to consider the story of the golden calf, as Joshua mentioned earlier, that's found in Exodus 32, and it is a story capable of standing on its own two feet. If you were to drop drop into Exodus 32, you would understand who the characters were. You would understand their motivations. You would know the setting. You would know the things that are at work, right? You would know by the end that God hates idolatry. You'll know that the Israelites are weak and pathetic. And you'll know that when you bring those two things together, praise God, that He is rich in mercy. You'll see the way that Moses stands in the gap between the sinful people and their holy God, much like Jesus Christ will do years and years later. So what more could or should be said about Exodus 32? Obviously, there's something more, because I'm just started. But suppose this morning I held up two paintings in front of you, and each one is a painting of a woman. Only one has been pulled from the bulletin board of a kindergarten art class, and the other is the Mona Lisa. They are essentially the same. They are both paintings of women. Yet they could hardly be more different. Now as Christians, it's important that we can boil down important things into simple forms, simple statements, simple ideas. But paying attention to the details is as much a part of becoming a disciple as boiling things down, boiling Bible stories down to the main point. Because without the details, we are left in a world of, no matter how wonderful these might be, in a world of oddly proportioned watercolor stick figures when we could have the richness and depth of da Vinci. So bear with me as we work through Exodus 32 and hit pause a couple of times to notice some details, and, and especially what these details might tell us about following Jesus. Uh, but before we go any further, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for Sunday mornings. Thank you, um, God, that you have commanded us to gather together. Uh, it can be easy to prioritize other things, easy to let things get in the way, um, And yet that command holds weight, and and it's not just a command uh, of weight, but it's also a command of of glory, of of goodness. God, that when we gather together, um, we encourage one another, we build each other up, we help one another walk this faith out, walk out what we believe, find the goodness and the joy in it. Lord, I pray that this morning, wherever people are coming from, whether it's uh, the highest highs, the lowest lows, or somewhere bouncing in between, uh, that you would open our ears to hear what you have to say that you would work on our hearts, that we would grow in our knowledge of you, our love of you, Um, and as a result, Father, we would grow in our love for each other, that we would uh, bear light into a world who desperately needs it. Um, God, I pray that again this morning you would um, reward us as we look into your word and, and that we would see what you have for us there. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So picking up with Exodus 32, verse one, just starting in verse one, it says, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain. Now, if you've heard what I said about the Star Wars thing, I'm stopping and we're going to slow down a little bit. Uh, just here in this first statement, we are already introduced to four very important, vital elements of this story. Can, can you spot them? It may be, maybe it would help to be reminded of the five W's, the who, what, when, where, and why. In this first phrase, again, it's, it's not even a whole sentence, just in this first phrase, we already have two who's, the people and Moses. We have a why, because Moses delayed, and we have a where, the mountain. Now, I personally find it helpful when I'm reading stories in the Bible uh, to try and imagine them like a movie. How would this scene be shot? How would I be watching this unfold on a screen? Because if I saw the tents, these people were camped at a mountain, if I saw the tents filling the land beneath the mountain, I would begin asking, who are these people? How did they get here? Why are they in tents? What's this mountain? What's... And we all do those things as we watch a movie, we watch a show unfold, and we should do the same thing with the Bible. We see the people anxiously, impatiently murmuring about Moses, we would, we would wonder, well, who's this Moses guy? He's obviously pretty important. What are they waiting for? Where's he been? What's taking him so long? So if we're coming to this story for the very first time, and maybe you are, but chances are you're not, like, what could we know from those few words? What are the kinds of questions we should be asking as this scene unfolds? Well, again, it, we know Moses is important, but it'd be good to wonder why. We might also wonder how long Moses has been gone. Has he really delayed? Has it been 20 minutes of a delay or something much longer than that? And what's he been up to anyways? Now, of course, if we've been tracking with the story of Exodus, we would have answers to these questions, but we haven't. This morning, we're just finding ourselves in Exodus 32. And that's okay because the Bible likes to repeat itself. It it tells you over and over again what's going on, which was essential when the Bible was primarily heard instead of read. When you're reading something, you can just flip back to it and see what what was said. But if you're listening, you kind of need the repetition because you can't just flip back a few pages when you kind of forgot what the story was doing. But again, Exodus will fill in those gaps, these things that we don't know. But in the spirit of that movie watching friend who doesn't want you to miss any of the details, let me again point out just a few things. First, you shouldn't imagine the people like the McAllister family from the original Home Alone movies, which was a group of, you know, 20 or so relatives that were traveling together. While the Israelites might be similarly dysfunctional to the McAllisters, there were thousands and thousands of them. Second, Exodus 24, verse 18, tells us how long Moses had been up on the mountain. Forty days. And 40 nights, a few verses before that, Exodus 24 and 15, 16 and 17, tell us more about the mountain itself. It was Mount Sinai, and God's presence covered it in a cloud and like a devouring fire in the sight of Israel. So the Israelites were not camping beneath some ordinary mountain. Something undeniable and extraordinary, and yes, terrifying, was obviously taking place. And Moses was quite literally in the thick of it. And what has Moses been up to on that mountain? Well, Exodus 25 through 31 tell us he's been on the mountain amidst the clouds and the fire speaking with God. But he's not just speaking with God. He is speaking with God about the tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle might seem like a total snooze, <laughs> um, it's, but it's, it's very important that this is the conversation they're having because the tabernacle was how God planned to keep his presence with his people. It was how he was going to go with them. It was a traveling, portable temple. It was a tent on posts that they could pick up and move as they wandered through the wilderness. So God was giving Moses instructions. He was giving him his plans for how he was going to dwell among this newly forming nation So now that we've got this in our head, we've got that out of the way, we can resume our story. And since we've only made it about seven seconds into that first scene, we're just going to start back from the top. So back again, beginning in verse 1. It says, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, We do not know what has become of him. Now, this ought to strike you as highly ironic, given everything that just came before. If you're just dropping in, you might miss it. But if you're tracking with the context, the extra details, the pause and annoying friend who's talking your ear off, you understand how ironic this is. As God is explaining to Moses how it is that he will go with them in the tabernacle, the Israelites fear that they have been abandoned. Now, to be fair to the people, they didn't yet know the details of Moses' newest conversation with the Lord. But they did know the details of Moses' prior interactions with God on Sinai. Back in Exodus 24, before Moses once again goes up to Sinai to hear God speak... He tells the people what God had said so far. Again, this is, this is detailing what's happened in 19 through 23. He's telling what God has said there. And what he, he says is he gives them laws. He gives them laws, instructions for how they are to conduct themselves as God's people, as God's holy nation. And chief among these laws are, of course, the Ten Commandments. And depending upon your familiarity with the Ten Commandments, you'll know that one of those commands, recorded at Exodus 20, verse 4, prohibits the making of images and likenesses, idols, for worship. Now, it doesn't take a genius to see that the Israelites' wishes are in clear violation of God's word. And frankly, those words, make us gods, should sound ridiculous to you. Should sound ridiculous to us. And not ridiculous in the way that jumbo shrimp kind of sounds ridiculous when you really think about it. But ridiculous in the way that a four-sided triangle ought to sound ridiculous. It's not possible. A man-made, hand-made God. How could all of these people be so foolish? What were they trying to accomplish? What were they hoping to gain? What were they afraid to lose? After all, the Israelites were understandably afraid. Their exodus from Egypt was not something they had planned. It was sprung upon them. And yes, it was a good thing, a very good thing. But that doesn't mean they were ready for it. It doesn't mean that they were ready to be out alone in the wilderness by themselves. Moses, the man who had been guiding them on their journey, has disappeared. Now imagine yourself in that situation. You have followed this man into the middle of nowhere, and now he's gone. Without his guidance, not to mention his provision, he's splitting the sea, he's getting water from rocks, he's doing all of these things. Without that, you're up a creek without a paddle. And it's not just you, it's you And all of your family and everyone else you have ever cared about in the entire world, lost in the wilderness. If you put yourself in their shoes, it is not hard to feel their anxiety. But that doesn't necessarily explain why they would jump so quickly to making an idol. Also, in our attempt to sympathize, we might have stepped into the wrong shoes. Because as it turns out, there is more to this story. Remember that the Israelites were looking for someone to go before them. That's what those verses say. They were looking for a God to go before them, someone to lead them. Well, in Exodus 23, God has already said that he would send someone before the Israelites to guide them and guard them on their way to the home that he prepared for them. So if you look at Exodus 23, I've got a couple verses uh, jumping here, but starting in 20, it says, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. If you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. That doesn't mean they're going to betray them. That means they're going to turn and run. They're fleeing from them. See, this is great news for a lost people wandering in the wilderness. Right. This is great news for these people who are caught between their old life of slavery and their new life of blessing. See, God didn't bring the Israelites out of Egypt to then dump them in the middle of nowhere. He said he would lead them, and what God says is as good as done. Now, these words in 23 are some of the last words God speaks to Moses before he tells Moses to go back down the mountain to the people and tell them all he has commanded them. So we pick up in 24, Exodus 24, in verse 3, uh, these conversations that Moses is having. It says, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people. And he said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So that's taking place in chapter 24. What we've looked at earlier was taking place in chapter 32. There is a span of 40 days, less than two months before the golden calf fiasco. These people are making this covenant, this blood pact with God in these deals. The, the covenants, the animals were serving as symbols and warnings to the agreeing parties. They were saying, may my fate be the same as this animal if I don't keep my end of this deal. It's very serious business. But if we bring ourselves back to the story of Exodus 32, it doesn't seem like the people are taking their side of the agreement very seriously. And as a matter of fact, they aren't taking God's side of the agreement very seriously either. And as a reminder, all of this is happening while the mountain is literally burning with a cloud of smoke on top. See, the very things, the cloud and the the, the fire, the very things that God used that he filled with his presence to lead his people out of Israel. He led them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Those things are still highly visible right by their camp. Yet the Israelites still desire to make for themselves A leader. They still are looking for someone to lead them, and that's exactly what they do. So let's pick up in verses 2 through 6. It says, So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said... These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. There's a lot here, and we will end today focusing on these first six verses. But I do think it's important that we uh, briefly see how this story ends before coming back around to this, Um, because obviously we're not making it through the whole chapter at this pace. Uh, God knows, God knows in Exodus 32 what's taking place in the camp below. The clouds have not obstructed his view, and he is not happy. As a matter of fact, the Bible speaks of God's anger burning hot, which refers to that red-faced hotness you might feel uh, when you are exceedingly angry. But considering God's presence in the fire, it might be a little more than mere symbolism. Now Moses pleads with God for mercy by appealing to God's own promises. God had promised to bless the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and those are the very people filling the camp. So God relents from the destruction he planned. And Moses descends the hill. And now it's Moses' turn to be hot. Moses is angry. He arrives on the scene. He throws the stone tablets on the ground and they break. Signifying the the rupture, the fracturing of their agreement. Of the covenant that God and the people had made. The Israelites have already gone and blown it. I've seen it compared to... The wedding night and cheating on the wedding night and the absurdity of it. That's what's happening here with the Israelites. So Moses is angry. He goes, he he burns, destroys the golden calf and grinds it into a powder. And the people do end up suffering as a result of their disobedience. Verse 28 tells us that 3,000 men were killed as punishment for their sins. But thanks to Moses, the people were spared the full wrath of God. And from all of this, we would conclude, you know, that God hates idolatry. Idolatry is bad and evil, but God is merciful. God is merciful. And thanks to the work of a mediator, whether it's Moses or Jesus, we can be spared from the wrath of God. Praise God. I'm not here this morning to simply tell you that idolatry is evil and sinful and tends toward destruction. I'm not even here to tell you or or to warn you against worshiping idols. And it's not because I think idols are harmless. In fact, that's kind of my point. I, I think we know idols are destructive. We know this. Because their power, whether real or imagined, always runs out. Let's go back to those six verses at the beginning of Exodus 32. Here's a very easy question. What did Aaron and the people make? Now, I don't need to give too much time for you to find this answer. Uh, Exodus 32.4 tells us that they made a golden calf. Now, why would they choose a calf? Well, it's helpful to know what exactly is meant by a calf. Because it's not likely that this was a golden statue of a weak, feeble, fledgling baby bovine. Right? This isn't like some baby calf. When What we read in English as calf is, is translated, uh, just indicates youthfulness. It's a young animal, which could describe a bull up to two or three years old. And that bull would have been a far cry from a baby. As a matter of fact, my little bit of... Digging Google, uh, seem to suggest that this might have been or might be the peak age for bulls. But again, don't take me to the bank on that one. Ultimately, the calf here is not this, the skinny newborn with legs like stilts in an earthquake. Right? It's a powerful beast with horns like spears. The bull was a common symbol for strength in the ancient world, and it is still a symbol of strength today if you were given to idolatry, if you were given to making idols, you could do a lot worse than a bull. Like I said, the bull was a common symbol in the ancient world, including Egypt. Maybe even especially in Egypt. The same Egypt that had been home to the Israelites for 400 years. Now for reference, the USA hasn't even been a country for 250 years. So to say that the Israelites may have been influenced by their Egyptian neighbors, would be an understatement. So then that's obviously what's wrong with the golden bull, right? It's this strange Egyptian god. It's a phony. And obviously it's wrong to worship false gods. Well, here's my next question. And it's maybe a little more difficult than the last. Who or what were the people worshiping? In those six verses, did they think they were worshiping some different god? No. They believed they were worshiping the God who had freed them from Egypt. Aaron even declared a feast to the Lord. The parallels between this corrupt worship in Exodus 32, that's led by Aaron, and the righteous worship that we read in Exodus 24, led by Moses, with Aaron close at hand, the parallels between those two, in my opinion, are plain. In both instances, an altar is built. On both occasions, the people awake early in the morning to offer both burnt and peace offerings. On both occasions, they eat and drink, and then they rise. The same language is used to describe both. In Exodus Exodus 32, they rise and they play. Some Bibles even translate that as dance. In Exodus 24, Moses also rises up. But he rises up into God's presence at Sinai. So it would appear as though Aaron in Exodus 32 is doing his best to lead the Israelites through an authentic form of worship in Moses' absence. There's only one problem. It's the elephant in the room. Sorry, guys, I could not help myself. Uh, In this case, it's actually the giant golden bull in the camp. We have no reason to doubt the sincerity of the Israelites in Exodus 24 when they accepted God's laws and pledged themselves to obedience. And while it's possible that they were completely aware of their denial when they made this golden calf, it's not exactly clear when you read the text. Again, the the bull doesn't replace the Lord in their minds, even if it does render their worship vain problem we have, like the problem of the Israelites, isn't that we think idols are great and that God should just chill out about it. The problem we have is that we don't think our idols are idols. We think our golden calves are honoring God. Of course, there are times when idolatry is outright denial of God, rather than some convoluted hodgepodge of conflicting convictions i'm not saying that every case of idol worship is well-intentioned there are plenty of examples within israel's history where there's no charitable bless your heart uh, explanation for their mistakes for their mess ups and there are plenty of people walking around today who will proudly denounce god the father god the son and god the holy spirit But if you're here this morning, if you happen to be tuning in, you are much more likely to have a golden cap that you have failed to recognize than one that you proudly worship and deny God for. See, just like the Israelites imported their Egyptian habits ingrained over centuries, we too can import our own habits, our own American habits. Now, granted, many of our American values have derived from Christianity, but that doesn't mean they all do. It doesn't mean that some of them haven't shifted out of alignment with the faith once for all delivered to the saints. See, our well-meaning worship can just as easily turn foul when we forget or fail to trust in God's word. And we rather turn to the corruption that we're used to. The corruption that we don't even see as corruption. The Israelites believed they were honoring the God of Israel with worship from Egypt And we can just as easily believe we are honoring the God of heaven with worship from the world. Take, for instance, homosexuality and same-sex attraction. There is a Christian impulse to argue for love and acceptance and equality and care and hospitality. Yet scripture makes the sinfulness of such relationships clear. Yet how many of us are trying to honor God with that calf in the camp? Or, maybe something a little less touchy, but much closer to home for many of us here, how many, is, how many of us ignore God's commands to rest? But we do it in the name of worshiping him, of honoring him. We work harder and we work longer to take care of our families. We fill our schedules with activities and events to make sure our lives are as fulfilling as they possibly can be. All the while, God just says, rest. Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest like once every six days like don't work at all how many of us have that golden calf in the camp see the golden calves in our lives show up for the same reason as the first one we grow impatient and we don't trust in jesus like the israelites we're surrounded by the signs of god's power and presence whether it's the bread and juice of communion, it's the water of baptism, it's the Holy Spirit-filled fellowship of the saints. Like the Israelites, we're caught between slavery and the promised land, pilgrims in a foreign country. We've been rescued from the shackles of slavery to sin, but we've not yet made it home to the kingdom of heaven. Like the Israelites, waiting Moses' descent and return from Sinai, we await Christ's return from his heavenly throne. And like the Israelites didn't trust God to lead them, we don't trust God to fulfill us apart from our sexuality. Never mind that Jesus, the human par excellence, lived his entire life single. And we don't trust God to provide for us if we ever take a break. We don't trust God to keep all of our plates spinning if we ever step away. Never mind the ravens and the lilies that he cares for out in the field. The gospel solution to the problem of our golden calves can be found in something we already read this morning. Exodus 23 verse 25 says, you shall serve the Lord, your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. This is the work Jesus does. This is the work we see Jesus doing in the gospels. He multiplies bread and turns water into wine. He heals the sick. He raises the dead. This is the power of our king, and it is the climate of his kingdom. And the gospel tells us that all we must do to enter into this kingdom is repent, to turn from our sins and believe. Earlier this morning, we imagined two paintings, a child's watercolor and the Mona Lisa, Each is good and valuable in their own right. I love getting watercolor paintings for my kids. There's a place for both. But while they're essentially the same thing, it's a painting of a woman or a painting of a tree or you pick it, the differences are huge. In a similar fashion, I've attempted to hold up two versions of the story of the golden calf. And while they're essentially the same and they both tell you the truth, The details that differ can have a very big impact upon the way we follow Jesus. Yes, idolatry is bad. But do you really know what your idols are? Or have you built golden calves and made them a part of your authentic worship, wrongly believing that they are honoring God? Where the Israelites failed, we must keep watch. Do we know God's word? Do we remember what he has promised to us and what he has commanded Will we trust him to lead us and guide us and bring us safely home? Will we trust him to satisfy us? And when we don't, when we fail, do we remember that we have one better than Moses interceding on our behalf? Do we remember that we have a covenant made with blood much better than that of goats or sheep or oxen? If you will entrust yourself to these words, you'll find that the golden calf you think you need to meet your needs is obsolete. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, um, give us us wisdom uh, in our own lives. Um, Give us wisdom in the lives of each other. God, foster a love and a a community, a fellowship um, here at Prairie View, where we can speak into each other's lives and warn each other. of these things. God, help us to see that our sins are not always so obvious. And what looks incredibly foolish in hindsight or incredibly foolish from the outside in can make all of the sense in the world when we're stuck in the middle of it. God, help us, um, to trust you, Lord, to trust what you have to say, that when you say you love us, you mean it. When you tell us that you want to give us abundant life, You mean it. When you tell us you're making a home for us, that you're preparing a place for us, and that you will one day get us in return and take us there. Help us believe it. Help us to not look for uh, things here and now that can't satisfy us, uh, whether it's a golden calf or something else. Father, I pray that um, amidst all of this, we would most of all remember... um, those words of Exodus 33, that you are God, uh, that you're rich in mercy, and you're slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Um, that's how you describe yourself. And so when we we mess up, maybe we do have these golden calves, God, we don't have to fear the way that the Israelites might have needed to fear, because Jesus Christ is interceding on our behalf. He has stood in our place and taken the wrath that we deserve, that we might be forgiven, that we might live at peace with you. God, help us to feel that good news uh, in our bones and uh, help us to live out of that good news and out of that strength um, in all that we do, trusting that the God who has brought us out of sin and death isn't just going to dump us somewhere in the wilderness, but that you do love us and you do care for us. Father, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way you speak to us in it, um, even if it's a story from thousands of years ago that still has relevance to the human heart today.